You're listening to Frankly Earnest, hosted by Sam Christie, co-host and producer, Allie Hall. Today, we're talking with Dr. Catherine Bonafide. She's an amazing person, extremely intelligent, extremely eloquent, and we're so happy that she could join us today to talk about everything that we did. Of course, we went on some rabbit holes, as we always do, but we hope you enjoy and we hope we can have her back in the future. Let us know what you think. Tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you go to school? What did you study? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm really excited to be with you both today. Um, I am a clinical psychologist. I'm a professor at SUNY Cortland in the psychology department. I have a bachelor's in psychology. Then I did a master's um, of counseling and then proceeded to go on um, to earn my PhD in clinical psychology. So I have a lot of training in various behavioral health interventions, uh, particular specialties in borderline personality disorder. And at this point in my career, I just love uh, studying and teaching about psychopathology. They said to go for a year and I went for three years. Love it. And and, yeah, learned more every time I went. Mm -hmm. I think so many of those skills are like building a muscle. Um, The more you practice or exercise it, the better you get at it. So yeah, kind of just in an instructional language, DBT has four modules. Uh, There's mindfulness, uh, emotion regulation, interpersonal effectiveness, and distress tolerance. So all of, you know, what Sam was describing, these are like these four major areas that cause us distress. Um, And I think a big one is feeling like we have control. Because a lot of times our emotional experiences and our interpersonal ones make us feel out of control. And that's yeah. certainly distressing. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. What do you have to say about vulnerability versus anger in someone like Ernie with antisocial personality? Oh. Like, how do they approach that? The vulnerability and anger. Well, I think everyone is different. So it's, you know, an individual um, kind of manifestation, but it sounds like, like anger is probably directly linked to vulnerability in Ernie's, um, kind of structure, personality structure, structure. So yeah, when that vulnerability was exposed, challenged, um, the response was anger, which is not, which is common, which that would be typical of these personality disorders, this this kind of set of personality disorders that antisocial is in, which yeah, yeah. borderline actually is as well. But yeah, he would do other things when violence didn't work. It happened to be kind of his his go to, you know, at home. But um, I remember one time driving with him, and and I had already hit him back. And so he wasn't hitting me anymore, but he was still saying awful things and really controlling my life. 
and we were driving, I'm riding in his truck and we were driving through town. We passed this woman on the sidewalk and a pedestrian and my, and he looks over and says, boy, she's old. And I swung and, and looked and then I looked at him and just without thinking, I just said, oh, she looks about the same age as you. And then we just had silence in the, in the truck. And, um, we, we drove five or 10 miles and I started to notice he looks like kind of angry, you know, and he started talking about mistakes I had made or ways I had been a disappointment or trying to run me down. Like he's going through the long through this. And I realized this is who works up to this. So he might hit me. And so I just got ready. I thought if he hits me, I'm hitting right back. And I just sat there and we, and he, and sure enough, he pulled off the highway and took the country road like he used to do. And, uh, and he worked up angrier and angrier and I just waited and then, and he, uh, he backhanded me and I immediately swung back and I broke his uh, glasses oh. in his face and he pulled over and stopped and he was crying and there was blood everywhere and he cried, you know, he broke my glasses and I did, helped him pick up the pieces and I set him on the seat and he's like, well, you, you want to ride home? And I'm like, no, I'll fucking walk. <laughs> and he drove home. But when I got home, like, so now violence is not a thing he can use, right? So when I got home, boy, he went to negotiating and denial and bargaining and begging and, and ended up talking me into staying, you know, because um, I was living with him at the time. So I was 21 years old and, um, and I stayed, you know, after that. But I felt good that I had hit him back. You know, at least I had like, you know, <clears throat> and he was, he was uh, really not willing to be violent at that point. Like he had given up being violent with anybody. He wasn't, he didn't want to go get in fights at the bar anymore. And, um, you know, he wasn't bringing women home and, and beating them anymore. He had kind of, he, he had adjusted. I, I, I feel like I adjusted him and I felt like this responsibility to do that. I felt like it was my job to help my dad figure out how to you know, behave and get along in the world, which I know it wasn't. Right. And I can't imagine what that required summoning for, you know, a young person. Um, again, just it the, the internal much, resources you had. <laughs> um, too much responsibility. <laughs> yeah. Have, um, have you read about the, like, under arousal hypothesis of antisocial personality? No, I think like that's what keeps kind of coming to mind too with the, the anger question and the physical violence. Um, what the research shows is that people with antisocial, they physiologically have a reduced response to stimuli that would typically, you know, get an normative person, like create a fear response or an anxiety response or an adrenaline response. And what we see that behavioral pattern be it's just like that stage of his the long stage of his life where he sought out these physical altercations. It's almost to like get a rise, like because yeah. these individuals don't get that kind of yeah excitement response that most of us do, you know, just from Ooh. average things in life. And you almost see this like buildup of I seek it out more and more so I can feel feel that rush, feel um, that response. Oh, I have a lot coming to mind when you say that. If I can interject, does that touch with like being a serial killer at all? Like taking that violence to a certain level? Yeah, uh, like absolutely. Because I mean, in theory, all serial killers are psychopaths, and um, they. I often 
imagine it as I need to keep taking it to another level to like get something out of this. Yeah. yeah. To feel it. Mm -hmm. To match yeah. the intensity. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The rush. Yeah. Um, mm. That first psychiatrist of mine, he, um, he suggested that day that I ought to, he asked me if I thought my dad killed my mom. And when I said, no, it was an accident. He said, well, I, if I were you, I'd consider the possibility. Um, and, and his explanation was, you know, he kind of thought that my dad probably was compelled to kill Sandy in front of me mm -hmm. to sort of bring me into his shame that he carried all the time, you know, and I, and, and it, you know, he was, he had a lot of disclaimers on that, you know, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> he's like, like, this is just how I'm seeing it. And I think you ought to consider that that's the possibility. Um, and I, at the time I was like, no, no, my dad, no. He wouldn't have done that. That was an accident, you know. Um, so I wasn't ready to hear it. But, um, it's an interesting but yeah, there strategy. Was, it was so intense, you know, yeah. so intense. And I think everything was intense for him. Like normal interactions that could possibly hurt someone's feelings were like just devastating for him and drove him to like, I, I've got to do something now, you know. And, um, and it, you know, it was, uh, he had to take, he had to retaliate, you know, if someone said something insulting, he had to, couldn't let it go. And, um, it's so complex. You know, it's, yeah. yeah. It's so complex. It's that the combination of this kind of need for like arousal or, you know, stimulation or rush combined with that fragility that, you know, it, it could be the littlest thing to, I mean, for, you know, to simplify, hurt their feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think this is something that, like, ran in his family? Like, where does this, because I don't, I don't really, I took one out of psychology <laughs> course, and I'm like, hey, but where does it come from? Yeah. How does that, so, <laughs> studying, working with, teaching psychopathology, uh, one of the most frustrating things is, you know, spoiler alert, we don't understand what causes any of it that well we we certainly have some understanding but none of the like we're talking let's focus on personality disorders even you know we talk about anxiety or depression none of them are entirely genetic none of them are entirely neurohormonal none of them are entirely um you know kind of modeled or behaviorally induced they're all some combination I would say we're focusing on personality disorders. A lot of our understanding of cause comes from childhood experiences, comes from just like Sam okay. said, that like formation of self um, that occurs in the early stages of life that really comes from yeah, our relationships, what we see, what's reinforced the world as we understand it. You know, it's really that those, the synapse formation, the self-concept, so, I mean, honestly, it, you know, I'd have to, if you, what would cause Ernie's psychopathy would probably go back to his childhood. What did that look like? I, that just, makes sense because I, Sam said a lot, like it's kind of the same, not the same like level, okay. but it was abusive. To, yeah. To what it, yeah, well, yeah, it was different, but you know, and it was a different time too. You know, I grew up in yeah. a time when people were starting to talk about, yeah. adults doing things to them and then and they were met you know 
I heard a lot of condemnation for adults who said, hey, when I was a kid, this happened to me. But I, I don't think it was a thing that really even got spoken as much, you know, when my dad was little. And, and he was, he had this combination of being really spoiled, really entitled, and also demeaned verbally. And, and I think had some, you know, some interactions with other um, adults, men in the community that he never could really divulge, you know, he would mm-hmm. sort of, and when I was, you know, I was a kid, I could do, so he told me a lot of stories, but I was dissociating as often as possible. Um, so I missed a lot. You know, I didn't know we'd be telling these stories later, <laughs> but it was too much for me. But, um, but yeah, I, I know he went through some stuff. And one, you know, I have little indications, like my mom's sister told me that the first time she met the family, so her sister Claire is with this new guy, Ernie, and they're going over to dinner to meet his parents, to meet Ernest and Lena Christie, my grandparent. So um, she said they went over there, and and so she's um, 15, 16, 17 years old. And she said that my grandfather spent the whole meal just talking about what a worthless, disappointing loser my dad was. And she said, my grandmother just looked at her plate the whole time. And she said, she's never in, this is what she said to me. I've never in my entire life heard anyone speak so badly to another human being. And, you know, and and my God, that's the first, like, even I know if my kid brings someone over, we're going to be nice and meet these people and, you know, ask them, we'll have a nice time. That's the goal you know, this isn't my chance to let everybody, oh my God, but I don't, you know, that's just what my grandpa did. And that was and in front of an job. audience. So behind closed doors, you can only imagine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The funny thing is my dad never, never spoke ill of his dad. Like he would tell stories of a couple of things that his dad did to him, but kind of in a, I can't believe my dad did that to me. And that wasn't fair, you know? But his anger was all reserved for his mom. Hmm. He felt he felt comfortable being angry at her. You know, she was the evil disappointment. But his dad, you know, um, was just you know, dad who you know maybe didn't do everything perfect. You know, but when he would talk about his dad, he would kind of back into justifying his own behavior. Like I was trying, I wasn't trying to be a bad kid. You know, and but it, with all the responsibility he was putting on himself, so his anger just all at my grandmother. And, um, you know, more than she deserved, for sure. So does it seem like it's probably from the grandpa? Or, like, not from, but, you know, I, like, stemming from that sure. situation? Well, it, I mean, it's either that or Mercury in retrograde. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear. I'm trying to keep the conversation going. Quiet yourself. Yeah, I think with, with that type of personality formation, yes. I think it is, it's a combination, like the, you know, interaction of that childhood experience and um, some innate physiological kind of abnormalities, probably like with, you know, endocrine and like cognitive systems that are kind of primed to 
you know, be a little abnormal. And then when placed in that experience of development, that's what happens. Um, and I mean, hearing about that childhood description, that dinner, his feelings towards his parents. I mean, it's all, um, I'm actually, I'm a psychodynamic therapist and it's just like defenses galore. And, and I think, you know, defenses get a bad rap in some ways, but they're real. And, and especially in personality pathology, we look at them and I mean, he, it sounds like he constructed some very, um, firm defenses that then you had to suffer. Um, they carried over. I mean, doesn't that, I was listening, I'm like, doesn't that track this, you know, the father, his terrible abusive behavior is justified. The mother is evil. And then you have to grow up with this man where the father son relationship is, uh, I can be abusive and it's okay. I'm not intimidated by you in any scenario, but you know, other people, um, I have a different dynamic with. It's so complicated. It's so complicated. It sounds complicated. Can people, that that was a question I had too. Like, I don't know, like in his life, you said that he kind of calmed down at a certain point, but like, would would he have ever really had the capacity for change if he like, like how Sam is sitting here before you, a normal person, would Ernie have ever had that capacity? Oh, what a question that I... (laughs) I certainly can't answer with any degree of confidence, but I can say the way we look at this, I mean, antisocial is obviously so severe because the consequences are, you know, harm and danger and threat to people's life and limb. And the, the gold standard approach is to catch it in childhood is to intervene with children who are showing some level of, you know, things we call conduct disorder, oppositional defiant, those behavioral problems and intervene then because kind of know if it doesn't get caught early enough to change those structures that shape someone to grow up, to see the world in the way that Ernie saw it and understand it, it kind of seems like the ship has sailed Mm -hmm. um, in a lot of cases. Okay. It, it did seem like the ship sailed. Yeah. The ship did sail. Yeah. I mean, hypothetically, he, though. He learned to oh, oh, I'm so sorry. No. What do you mean? What? Okay. No, what? The ship sailed. No, the ship. We, we make jokes like that all the time. Oh, my God. Okay. She See, she doesn't know us. I forget <laughs> that people don't know us. We make crude jokes all the time. Okay. He, he, one time, I, what did I say? I in the first to go down with this ship, In the the first episode, I say, I say, when did it really sink in that your mom passed away? And I didn't, I I didn't realize that until he pointed it out. And it's still there. I can't do anything about it now because, yeah. So when did it sink in that your mom passed away? And it's like, oh God, sorry about that. Yeah, it's good to laugh. I like to laugh. (laughs) That'll forever be in the first step. But anyway. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> I want to answer your question, Allie, if I can. What? Um, about my dad, about how people change. You know? Oh. Um, because I, for me, like, that's a big part of the story. Like, it's this beaming part of what I went through. It's that I also went through wrestling with him 
over how to live and how to get along in the world. And after he had killed Sandy and after he had um, decided to kill me and then I got him to back down, um, I had a little bit more of a voice and I could, I could appeal to him. I was thinking about this when you were speaking earlier about um, the, his defenses. Um, even when he spoke of the whole situation with Patty and the stump and with killing Sandy, he spoke as if he was the victim having to defend himself against, you know, other people. And, um, and I was able to help him kind of reason out that, okay, you can still blame the person you're mad at, but if we, if we just drop them off in town, you know, when you're mad, then you don't have to go through all this stress. Yeah. Uh, that you go through if you interrogate them and beat them. And, you know, if you think someone is your enemy, let's just drop them off in town. And then we can go have a nice breakfast. And he started to kind of embrace that idea, you know. So he, when I went, I went out when he died and I, you know, went around and paid his debts and, and or, well, he, he was up to date on everything, but I just, you know, handled things around the community. And everyone that had like a day-to-day interaction with him spoke very high, high, uh, highly of him, that he was kind and courteous. And I'm just glad that, that he did, you know, that he adjusted for society that way, you know. But he had to because he was, no one believed his bluster anymore. And so he compromised and became a peaceful old guy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in a way. You know, he was still a douche. I mean, he was, you know, I, I didn't talk to him the last few months of his life. Oh, really? And, um, and he, got, uh, he got my cousin to come and take care of him, drive him into town mm-hmm. and buy groceries for him. And he had promised, uh, he had promised my cousin a bunch of money that didn't exist. And, um, and so when my dad died, the cousin shows up and he's like, Hey, well, you know, I, I'm supposed to get that $50,000, you know, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> I, and I had, and he got kind of rude with me. So I, I felt kind of vindicated and just saying, listen, listen, Tommy, um, did not have that kind of money. next time you take, next time you make a deal, you should get the money up front. My dad lied to everybody. You're the next sucker. You're such a good teacher. You think so? He has. Sam does all these life lessons for people. He does. Yes, yes. That's that's (laughs) that guy. That guy does not like me, but that's okay. Everybody doesn't. Right. Now, sorry. Go ahead. I'm just thinking again. They're so smart people with that personality pathology. They're intelligent. And it's, it's exactly how you're describing your dad, like as life kind of moved on, he adapted to the demands. And I think about, you know, people with antisocial personality who are, and they're not, and many are not criminal and are not um, dangerous, but some are, you know, for those folks, they get caught, they're put in jail. um, And that's kind of the end of that story. But for people who aren't like, in this incredible case, it's like there's still a life to live and to adapt to if you want to keep surviving. The defenses shift. What worked before yeah. stops working. Um, it, it just speaks to the kind of, I don't know, the cleverness of the way the twisted brain works. Right, right. Yeah. He's, you know, he still saw himself as a person who, you know, wanted to have a happy life and, you know, and, um, you know, he had to reason things out his way, but, um, you know, he, 
I, I don't know. It, it was, it was, um, I was able to kind of regulate my emotions because when I moved away, I would still talk to him every week on the phone and he would tell me, you know, about his duck pond that he was working on or, um, you know, he had, um, he had decided not to, uh, to shoot deer anymore. So he went and bought a camera and some bait and started taking wow. pictures of the deer in his yard. Oh. And it just, it touched my heart to hear him like, oh. cause it was all emotional for, it was so emotional. This was over the top too. Like he called me just bawling because he okay. had shot some quail and killed a bunch of them. And he just, and one of them was just standing on the fence post staring at him. And he felt like that, that quail was full of all this rage and anger at him for killing his whole family. Oh. And this is my dad, you know, crying and I'm used to, I was used to this kind of emotion, but it was weird to hear him, you know, feel something for a little bird. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then he called later about the deer because he was about to shoot one. And again, he is just falling apart about how he almost shot this deer. But when he called a couple days later, he had bought a camera, and a salt lick and a bait thing and set him up. And he was taking pictures of the deer and he was so proud of himself. Like, and, and it was proud. He was proud of himself for being so smart because now those deer stay in his yard. See, and it would have been so foolish to shoot them because then you wouldn't have deer in the backyard. <laughs> now he's got deer. See, aren't I great? You know, and I congratulated him. You know, I'm, you know, good job, dad. That's yeah. what you need to do. <laughs> but, you know, I could walk away from those phone calls feeling like, oh, okay, well, that's, you know, everything's fine. Everything's mm-hmm. normal. But once he died, then things got looser in my head, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. Now, I have a question. But it's for, all, yes. I have a question for you. Um, so, serial killers, would you maybe classify him as one, in your personal opinion? How does that work? I, so unfortunately, that is That's like okay. outside of That's the okay. realm of my, anything I can say with, confidence i don't know what the what kind of classification is for serial killers when i would think just by definition repeated killing so that seems that seems right i'm also interested in in your thoughts maybe on um, on my dad psychopathology yeah not that i mean like i have so many like amateur people who you know watch five minutes of a show and they know how to diagnose him and they're not even professionals. <laughs> I don't even know if that's a good thing to do. Or, but I, do you have thoughts about about him? Um, or yeah, um, from from what I've learned, <laughs> listening uh, to the point that I have. So psychopathy. I'm not an expert in it by any means, but what I know about it is it's a misnomer. It's a it's a disorder, a psychological disorder that I believe people misconstrue when someone, so the disorder title, right. In the DSM is antisocial personality disorder. And I think you get most people thinking that means this is someone who's withdrawn living in a cave. Um, You can spot them. You can spot the psychopath. And, you know, from all of my training and experience, it's the opposite. Um, and I don't, I, I was actually curious if you were comfortable talking about it, about your father, like was he charismatic? Um, because that so often these people, and I will say men because statistically it's like 95% male. Hmm. I don't know if I knew that.
Now we're going to switch to a little light heart because Sam's got to step outside and smoke a cigarette. I adore the episode where you hear the birds tweeting. Oh, really? Because it's so relaxing. It's like it's like active mindfulness. See, that's fine. There's one where I had to cut out. You remember the one with Sammy? His girlfriend, she um, studied um, psychology at Virginia Tech. And so we were trying to talk about there. She Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. And what, what year did she graduate? How old are you? Uh, it's, well, it's a little bit of an age gap. She might be young, right? So I would have gone there for two months. I'm saying it. It's true. I would have gone there in like 2008. 2009, 2010. Oh, that's exactly oh. when I would have gone there. Oh, okay. So you didn't. I'm sorry. But I didn't go there. I went to Syracuse instead. Like, I'm so jealous. I can't believe you got, you got offended at the age gap. That's the least of the things to get offended at here that I called out your age gap. Yeah. When Sammy and I first started dating, it was really funny because she would tell people we met in the um the big brother big si- little oh sister God. program but that got really <laughs> awkward as we got more serious you know it's funny at first but funny. anyway but we get along now so you know um we have a like a i've been with her for six years and before mm-hmm. that i um you know i my friends used to joke that nobody could make it two months, you know, the paranoia would build and, you know, and Sammy's, you know, had, um, she has like my dream major, the, the, the trilogy of, of, you know, philosophy, uh, what else, psychology Psychology. and religion. And so, um, she's been able to like, um, talk with me, you know, more intimately at difficult times. I've been able to more in this relationship. And so it's, we're really stable, which has been super nice for me. You know, like I don't get worried about her. I don't, my dad, and I'm healing too, you know, so it's a sign of that as well. You know? Absolutely. I mean, if you don't mind me saying that comment of my friends would say, oh, she made it two months. I mean, I have clips of that, what I teach about BPD. And yeah. and it made me think, I'm like, what an, what an index of progress. You know, I mean, that's an yes. exact... Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And the the real, and a lot of the things about uh, BPD is treatment is obviously critical, but people also tend to outgrow it. Uh, There's something about maturity and time that we don't see it persist. Um, I would actually say in the, like, the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Some combination, of course, of treatment and, but also some kind of developmental processes too. Um, yeah. And I'm glad to be here. I'm 50 years old. Um, and huh. so I did, I did kind of, you know, BPD really, you know, kind of messed me up in my 20s, 30s, and 40s. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that was, it was really just, you know, the, the, my recovery time you know, from, from childhood stuff and, and, you know, and also this, this culture, you know, like we talk about on the podcast, how my dad is not like some weird aberration in a world full of normal people who do the right thing. Right. Like those, those, those attitudes that he espoused, like you learned those from other yeah. Americans, you know, from, he learned it from his world and, um, and he put it together the way he did, you know, but, um, uh, anyway, uh, but I, you know, it's, I, I had to grow up and realize that, you know, lots of people are maybe not 
trustworthy or have my best interests at heart. And then, and maybe, or maybe they are, or maybe they don't know, or, you know, lots of people are angry, my dad or insecure, like, and, and systems are set up unfairly, kind of like the one I had with my dad. Um, like part of the reason I, I never, I thought about the military, but I just couldn't bring myself to go because I thought I'm not going to be able to handle somebody talking to me like that. Like, I'm just, I don't want to sign up for more, you know? Right. Um, but, but it is, it is kind of a hard road, you know, with, with, um, the, um, well, I guess what gets me, and I always want to bring it back to this with Ali is like some sort of larger intersectionality that, um, that we have to, pre- we pretend like everything's just the way it is or the way it should be, you know, and look at all the stuff we figured out. There's so much that we're wrong about, you know, and we're constantly learning those things and then having to fight with each other. Okay. To, to mention that here's something that's not working for everybody, you know, and then the, the whole, you know, and so much resistance to, you know, any, you know, to uh, anyone saying that, you know, like with global warning, uh, for instance, um, but everything we deal with is like that. It's, it's very frustrating. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm, I'll ramble on and I'm going to go back and go, sign down. So go back to answering her, go back, go back to answering to her question. Was he charismatic? Your dad? Oh yeah. The antisocial thing. Oh my God. He, he really was. He mm. was the life of mm-hmm. the party. And, um, and if somebody wanted to be the bigger life of the party, he would try to, um, challenge them, uh, physically, he would get threatening and violent early. And most people would back down and then he, you know, got to be perceive himself at least as the big, the big tough guy, the big dynamic guy in the room. However, he could only do that in certain social situations. He could do that at the bar or at his house with people who were there to, you know, share in the benevolence of his drugs. Um, he didn't usually have, you know, a, a group of people and, and sometimes things would get out of hand for him. Um, but he was, uh, he was, he was, uh, really nervous, um, uh, in other circles. Like, uh, my grandmother would convince him to go to church once in a while and he looked so uncomfortable the whole time and he would not be big and loud at church. He would be big big and loud with my grandmother after church, you know, he would kind of gauge his situation. One thing that, uh, that super confused me when I was a kid, I did not know how to understand what I was watching. Um, but my dad would bring out a woman to the house, uh, you know, for, you know, whatever reason they met at the bar and, you know, he often was going to the bar and trying to bring a woman home. And, and there were a couple of them that stood out in my mind because I saw them say things to my dad and make him back down. You know, like he would, he would make a little joke about them being fat or old or, you know, some, some sort of insult joke and they would get right in his face and say, now Ernie, you knock that shit out right now, or I'm just going to leave. And he, and I would watch him like back down and get polite. Those weren't his favorite people to have out you know, mm-hmm. but, um, their power just uh, astounded me. Like, how did they do that? What was that? You know? <laughs> yeah. Like what is right. that? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's certainly something you could never be. Right. As I didn't know how, I didn't know how to act that way. You know, I didn't know what that was. I didn't understand. And I didn't see through him. Like they saw that he was insecure and out of that insecurity, 
being insulting and they already knew that they weren't going to deal with that from anybody else ever again anyway. And they knew to shut him down like right away and other people would be polite, you know, and so, you know, nice people, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, or he would, he would call, you know, and then he could dominate, you know, Yeah. then he could, um, tear, tear you down and, or tear me, you know, it was, wow. And yeah, I don't know. So he was, yeah, he was very, uh, very, uh, charismatic at times. And when I went out years ago, seven, eight years ago as an adult, I do a TikTok about this where I went out and, uh, and went to his favorite bar and I was sitting there having a drink and somebody called out from across the room. They saw me and they're like, is that Sammy Christie? And like, you know, this crowd gathered of all of these people sharing stories about how just how much they loved my dad, how much fun he was, you know, and someone would throw out like, oh, it's really a shame what he did to that girl, but we all loved it. Or, you know, it's a shame about your mom, but we all, he was so, your dad was such a great guy. And, you know, he did get mad that one time and burn my house down, but, you know, I forgave him, you know, <laughs> craziness, yeah. craziness, you know, but, he, you know, he didn't feel comfortable around people. He didn't know how to do that. He didn't feel comfortable with himself, but he would put on a show, you know. But, I mean, that is the complicatedness of antisocial personality. It is so complex right and bizarre and mm -hmm. intense that and you saw all these sides of him right so just let's talk about the social thing there is this often psychopaths are very intelligent they have to be um so i hear all this social intelligence i mean to play this role in all the right places like he did to have a crowd of people be like i loved him even though we burned my house down like yeah. <laughs> this yeah. social skill set there um mm -hmm. It's just incredible. And it's, you know, it's scary and frustrating from like kind of a professional angle because it's what makes it so hard to work with. Um, it's so, yeah. so trendy right now, you know, the shows, the CSI and the oh crimes, and everyone wants to oh be a forensic God. investigator, but you can't, it's just not that easy. You can't really predict people who are who are somewhat unpredictable and really, really smart. And not to ramble, but I'm just so struck by kind of your experience with how do I do that? How do I put him in this place like that? You've probably, I'm so impressed with how much knowledge you have already. I get the investment in understanding these things. It's, right. But like ego injury, I don't know if that's come up in your readings, that concept of ego injury. Oh, for, for him or for me? About or... him about him i i well the i read a, a book someone gave me um early on um by um is it masterson it's the search for the real self and it's an older book but mm -hmm. it, it it he discussed that in there that um these personality disorders come from an injured sense of self mm -hmm. is that what you mean and then and then the person constructs a false self or a a narrative to protect themselves. I don't, that's all I, that's, I can think of. So yeah, like kind of from a, like an origin standpoint, and I was thinking a little bit more in line with what you would see as a kid. So his reaction to these women or his non-reaction at church, the idea, so it's more of a narcissistic trait, which yeah. is also present, right? These things don't stand alone. Um, so um, narcissistic ego injury is that, underneath all of that social skill and facade and like you said kind of you know false persona 
is typically yeah. a fragile, a fragile ego and a fragile kind of um, self-esteem. And in the right oh, yeah. scenario, it, yeah, like exactly how you described, it could be pretty easily injured. Um, but depending on the role. Now, can yeah, I ask yeah, yeah. Um, for him, would you like be able to, how do you um, describe what is happening when other people are able to get him to stand down? Because he, he describes to this instance, we haven't talked about it too much on the podcast, but when he took him, I don't know if we put it up, he took him down to his boat and beat Sam nearly to death. And I think it was after Sandy, right? Because yes, he didn't yes. know if you were going to, after. if he, he didn't know if yeah. you were going to tell or not about it. And he kind of just stood up and, and was like, like enough. And then he did that same yeah. thing. So like, what's yeah. going on brain wise? Yeah, what's mean, happening there? It, much like the the book you reference in that we we build our personas right i think part of you know i think part of your dad's complex personality as a father to you and that role in his mind and behaviorally is is a one-way street of power so i'm guessing you know your yeah for sure yeah your behaviors never posed a threat to his ego because he didn't see that as a possibility. Whereas like a woman's rejection did the way he, he understood those relationships and those dynamics. You, you know, as a ch- his child who he has complete control over and, you know, from the tragic story, like even his spouse, you know, your mom, like he, his brain formulated the concept that I have complete power over these people yeah. And I don't over these people, which interestingly were arguably non-important people, you know, a woman from the bar or the church community, you know, not or like not important people in his life, but people who there was room for them to form an impression that he wanted them to form. And that was done with his family members and close others. That that's my yeah. instant kind of understanding of probably those dynamics. No, that sounds right. I mean, he had to, he was only really comfortable around people that he could groom mm-hmm. to kind of fit his ideas about himself. Mm-hmm. And, and he was, I think, terrified of, you know, any challenge to that, you know, mm-hmm. like he didn't get vulnerable as much with me as he just, he got angry, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I kind of just, I look back on all that and I think, well, you know, that was about him. One of my uh, first things I I remember learning in counseling that, that really stuck with me was I had a therapist who kept telling me over and over again that everything that everybody else says, even about you, is teaches you more about what's going on inside of them mm-hmm. than it does about you. And, um, and that's been so powerful for me to unpack my dad yeah. because I had to... I had to start facing that um, I, and that, this was a really hard one to accept because I felt like I was denying myself when I did it a little bit, but I felt like I had to see that my dad, boy, I'm really struggling through these words, um, that um, my whole experience of him is my experience and, and it's not necessarily indicative of it says more about what was happening for me in the experience than what was happening for him and and the things that he said to me were all about 
what was happening inside of him and not really about who I was. And, and so then I, I can obviously see, well, of course I was confused as a kid because I was trying to make sense of who I was from what he was doing and saying to me. And, and that's not where you get that information. Uh, nope. <laughs> you know, right. So that's been huge for me too. Like, it's weird all these little, like, they seem so self-evidently simple these ideas, you know, but it took me, you know, I don't know if I'm thick headed or, you know, or miraculous. I, um, (laughs) no, I think we, we don't give ourselves enough credit for understanding the complexities of human experiences. You know, we don't take time to stop and think, okay, the world that I live in is a construction of my experience. We just don't stop to do that until we do no. like you have um, out of necessity because of what you survived. Um, it, we started the combo talking about BPD, you know, kind of from a therapist lens. Sam, you, there's no situation in which you grow up and don't have BPD. You know that like, I don't know if therapists yeah. have said that. Um, yeah. That's how we understand because of exactly what you're describing. But I was just going to say, there's no way you navigate all of that without forming, you know, kind of complicated and likely dysfunctional um, systems of behavior, of thought, of emotion regulation. It's just a fact, but again, none of us stop to think about that until we have to. Yeah. 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 I do think you're miraculous. <laughs> you know, I, on that note, that makes me think of, because in the Thank last you. episode, we just talked about that um, at the sex um, addiction clinic, that, that therapist yes. was saying he needed to be sedated, strapped down to a bed, like with Ooh. his history. Oh. Oh, uh, with your with his history, yeah, like first, he should yeah, be. First psychiatrist, I. Uh, it's like I, I went to a sexual addiction treatment center. Thank you, Ali. I was gonna. Um, that's cool. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> while I was there, the um, I had a little bit of a breakdown. They 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 brought me in, and one of the first things they had me do was write out a sur- you know, fill out a survey, and it had a lot to do with childhood trauma because they feel like sexual addiction mm-hmm. is tied to that, and so like all other people like. You know, whatever they've been through, they want to kind of talk about that and how it affects them. Um, so they put me in a little room behind some filing cabinets with this this stack of papers. And I was needing to use the back of the pages to answer all the questions, right? And and by day two, they're like, Are you're still working on that stuff? Well, okay, I guess, you know, go back. And and nobody knew how much I was divulging until I finished and then the psychiatrist there on staff got to read my stuff and he he pulled me out and you know called me in and, and wanted to talk with me and and he's yeah he said you know usually when I you know as a professional read this kind of stuff you know I'm expecting that I'm going to go see a patient at the state hospital mm-hmm. they're probably strapped to a bed they never get unstrapped and they're always medicated and he was just shaking his head like you you got a job mm-hmm. you got married wow <laughs> and that was kind of like, that was so shocking to hear someone speak to me that way because I thought like wow really? I just been plowing along you know <laughs> um, yeah but I, I think I was really smart and I was mm-hmm. there was a lot of pressure on me and the family to act like everything was okay and so I was pretty practiced at that and so I figured out how to act like 
a normal person, even though anyone who really got close to me shook their head, say there's something weird about you. <laughs> so I just kind of learned to keep those people away. And, mm. and I had my little narrative, which was that I had a bad childhood, but it doesn't affect me now. And, um, you know, and, and uh, yeah, anyway, so I was just charging ahead through life like that. Um, you know, until, until that became, you know, not possible anymore or until yeah. maybe I reached a point where I needed to break. Mm-hmm. You know? I don't know. What, what is your it assessment that on way. that? It you... felt like I needed to break open. Yeah. It's just an absolutely like extreme abnormal situation, but a very entirely normal response. That's what we all do. We find um, our ways to survive things. And for some folks, their systems work um, without too much problem and they kind of keep on keeping on. And for some folks, they become less functional, which like you exactly how you said it just really resonated with me. Like I needed to break. It it wasn't sustainable. Um, the system yeah. you had in place, but that's, but again, I mean, your, your childhood, your experiences, they're so exceptional that I, again, you're, I was just thinking of uh, protective factors. So everyone has their individual, I mean, yours are immense, like just like to be able to do what you did, you, you do, um, is I like I gotta love psychiatrists. They're they're less versed versed in like actual. I don't like the word talk therapy, but I'll say that um, in bedside manner. And but the way that psychiatrist said it, I couldn't agree more. I mean, yeah. So it's it's very it's all very um, kind of understandable from like a we talk about conceptualizing how and why people experience things that they experience. And I mean, it, it's all very um, what the science supports, except for the fact that you are, you know, so resilient. Well, that's good. I mean, I don't mind being in the resilient chair (laughs) and I really, I really appreciate um, everything that I hear like this because it may, you know, just listening to you, it makes me feel like I'm, um, I'm just one of you. I'm one of the, the regular, normal humans who went through something exceptional, and I had the kind of experience and reaction that humans have. Yep. And then I feel I don't feel so separate because when I was a kid, I felt so separate and so different, and I worried so much that I would never ever be accepted or feel like a part of humanity because of all that stuff that I was in with my dad and um anyway so it's just, it's super healing to mm. to hear it phrased that way thank you yeah and if i could add because i keep that just to add i keep thinking this whole conversation you've proceeded so normally you know in spite of such abnormal um experiences and to loop back to kind of bpd treatment and you mentioned going through dialectical behavior therapy and you said, like, like I really yes. fit in with those people. I always say that every human being on earth should undergo at least one course of DBT because oh my God. it's how to be a person. Yeah. It's how to exist in a yes. world with other people. I was going to ask you, what yes, can, you, can you describe yeah. what DBT is? That was my next question for oh you. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> a good segue. Yes. yes. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Are you asking? I mean, I'll tell you. I'll, I'd love, my, I'd my love for her question. to tell us. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Give you a real, you know, a 
Like we can both. We can both. I have my handbooks over there. Um, I mean, the easiest way. Well, the history of it is it was actually invented by a woman who later um, disclosed that she had borderline personality disorder herself. Um, it was developed for like kind of treatment resistant uh, borderline depression people with, with suicidal ideation. But I mean, it is how to be a human in a human world. You learn how to survive situations that are tough. Um, and not, and really the heart of it, and I don't know if Sam, you got this, is and to not make situations worse. Uh, I always yeah. yeah that about Yeah, that was, that was a big one. Because, um, I mean, I'm already charged with all mm-hmm. the emotion from the past, right? And so a big thing in, in dialectical behavioral therapy is what they call wise mind. It's the introductory homework that you'll get, Allie, if you ever enjoy a course. And you should, I'll take one. It's super, it's great. super great to do. But wise mind is just a simple idea that we have rational thoughts, but also we have our emotions. And instead of being, sometimes we may, you know, why can't I just make the rational thought? But sometimes I'm driven by my feelings and, and sometimes, you know, that gets out of control. So what we want to do is not just deny our feelings and force, you know, force everything down. We want to honor both sides of ourselves to understand, like, I really don't want to do this, but I think I need to, or I really don't want to be here. Um, but I keep saying that it's okay. And maybe I think I need to do something different, but you got to hold all those things to make a wiser decision. And we would all, you know, the the joke over here, it's not really a joke, but the comment over and over again, was that it would be so much easier to deploy all these interpersonal skills if everybody had to take this class. Because you're taught in DBT how to how to express your feelings, how to call the person's attention to the situation that you're describing, how to ask for what you want, how to reaffirm how this will benefit the, the other person and the relation. It's a it's just it's a bunch of people in a room trying to figure out how to be more effective at managing their emotions and their interactions with other people. And, and we are in a world of people who have no idea what we're doing. Thanks for joining us today, everybody, for this episode. I really enjoyed talking with you. I don't know how you feel about this episode, but I know Sam and I, we just loved learning about everything and learning about new terms, learning about maybe why Ernie was the crazy fuck he was. And yeah, well, I really enjoyed all of this discussion, um, incredible story, um, with a lot of psychological theory and, you know, humanism within all of it. And thank you both for having me. Thank you both for this podcast. Thank you for coming. Outstanding. We're so appreciative that you came. And what about you, Sam? What do you have to say? Well, I then also have to say thank you. I'm cutting I mean, that. I mean it, though. I'm cutting we, that. Uh, Allie and I, when we get off the phone, we always say, love you, mean it. And uh, if you wasn't familiar <laughs> with the phrase, I just said, you know, back in the 80s or 90s, we would say it. They don't really mean it. They just say it. Love you, mean it. It's sarcastic. But I'm going on too long. But I, I do want to thank you for, um, for coming and joining us and for just helping, you know, helping to kind of help me to see how we're 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 all more human and, and being human is is more about what we have in common mm-hmm. and and i so I, I just really appreciate your insight and, and thank you oh thank you
Okay. I'm going to put that You're in. You're so inspiring, Sam. I mean, there's the story, but all of your insight into it, it's so true. And I think about people spend decades, you know, studying these behaviors and uh, these disorders, but just your understanding of this, just like I said, extreme, uh, exceptional circumstance you were in for so long and the way you like are just living day to day and getting better at it. It's so awesome. And again, the, the whole story is there's so much more humanism to it than one would, I think, initially expect. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Frankly Earnest. You can now support the podcast by visiting anchor.fm slash franklyearnest slash support. Be sure to visit our Instagram for daily updates and posts for our links at Frankly Earnest Podcast. You don't want to miss out on Sam's TikTok at The Velvet Brick. See you next week.